0: It's lovely to be here this morning, just to uh, <clears throat> just to say we're so thankful for all your wonderful support and, and just your encouragement to us. And uh, one thing I wanted to say is we have had a blessing of being able to spend some time with many of you twice since we came back. And one thing that's very encouraging is just your depth of commitment to the Lord, <clears throat> how in your conversations when you're talking, uh, you just bring up s- Everybody I've talked to brought up issues about the Christian life, and, and, and that's a reflection, really, of your elders, Bob and James, because uh, they are so committed to the Word of God, and they preach the Word of God faithfully. And, and I James, being primarily involved in preaching the Word of God, preaches it so faithfully that it reflects uh, on you, and that's wonderful. And, and it's just wonderful. You're such an encouragement to us. <clears throat> when we're over there in Ireland... And we, when, I, when we think of uh, of just uh, a place where I suppose if things were really dry and we'd love to be, I'd, I'd think of Cornerstone because it's just wonderful what God is doing here. <clears throat> and so it's uh, just a great privilege to be able to come this morning and share from the Word of God from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. If I could um, clear up something, in, in, in the, um, the bulletin it says, Hard to identify the Christian. It's actually how to identify the Christian. <laughs> That's how I know. I know what happened. I was talking to Reuben on the phone, and it was my Irish accent. Because the Irish accent is sometimes it's difficult because we don't pronounce our words very well. In fact, in Ireland there are um, there are quite a few uh, quite a few accents. And, and, north, and, as I'll explain later in the second hour, north of the border, you know, you have Northern Ireland, the six counties, and you have the Republic. You have two Ireland's, really. And the Northern Irish accent is a very unique accent, and it actually fits in with, uh, with the, uh, mishap over the title, but when you meet somebody from Northern Ireland, you could, like, uh, play a little kind of a, I'm not a trick, but just a little bit of observation with them. You could ask them to say a word. <coughs> you could say, could you say this word? Could you say hard? And they'd say, Hard. Okay, <clears throat> could you say it again? Could you say hard, and then say hard? Okay, could you say Howard? Hard. <laughs> so anyway, that's the kind of it. so I understand. I understand when, when I was talking to Reuben why why this would um, why that would happen. You know, I want to talk a little bit this morning about how to identify the Christian. In, in everyday life, there are, identity is very important. If you're driving on the freeway and, and, and suddenly a highway patrol car comes into view, well, everybody identifies it and immediately everybody is driving at 54.5 miles an hour. And everybody is so nice and nobody is putting pressure on anybody you know, to speed up. And, 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 and then sometimes there are problems with identity. When I was growing up, there was a man, my brother's name was John, and he always called me John. Every time I met him, he would say, good man, John, because that's, that's the Irish way of saying, hi, what's up, you know, good man, John, he'd say. And it was interesting because my brother was short and had thick, dark hair, and I had fair hair then w- when I had hair. So, so, but and then I remember another very funny situation where when, when we first brought Aidan and Owen back to Ireland to visit my family, uh, a cousin, Mrs. Kelly, and she's a dear lady, but she had a problem with identity because the first thing she said about Aidan and Owen are, are they twins? You know, so yeah, so that was a, a real, that was really a problem. But, but really getting to more serious things, what are ways to recognize a Christian? What things in the life of a Christian would clearly communicate that he was a Christian, a Christ imitator? Or you could put it this way. If you wanted to identify a Christian, would that be possible? And, but I think it would. By, and I think a great identity parade is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. And what I'd like to do this morning is just to identify or talk about four ways that a Christian can be identified. Four ways that a Christian can be identified. Could we just have maybe a word of prayer just before we begin? Almighty God, we do thank you so much for your wonderful word. Thank you for Cornerstone Bible Church, which is founded on your word. Thank you that that the foundation of, of the church is Jesus Christ and the inerrant, perfect, infallible word of God. And we just pray this morning for this service that we would all be able to continue to worship you now because we know... It's such a wonderful and vital part of, the worship, of any worship service, is when your word is opened up and unfolded. As, as the prophet Isaiah talked about, he talked about the one who would, that you would look to, Lord, would be the one who has a humble and contrite heart and who trembles at your word. And you have spoken, Lord, and, and, and we shall, in a sense tremble, because it is an awesome thing that you have given us, these marvelous 66 books marvelously working in the lives of all the authors and, and supervising them in such a way that they wrote down the very words that you wanted written down. And we thank you that we have your word now. And we just pray this morning that you would, that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word and that Christ would be shown to be magnificent and, and, and in all his glory and his splendor and his perfect wisdom. And we just pray for each and every person this morning. If there's some, anybody that needs to be encouraged, that you would encourage them from the Word this morning, Lord. And if there's anybody that needs to be challenged, maybe challenged to be more passionate about you, maybe challenged to be more excited about you and less excited about the world, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. And if there's anybody, Lord, who is... Downhearted or or just really depressed, that you would lift them up, Lord, because, because truly your truth should lift any Christian. There should be no such a thing as a depressed Christian. And Lord, we pray that if there is anybody who is holding on to sin, maybe they have a pet sin, then we pray that you would convict them, Lord, and that they would just throw it away and run from it. And if there is anybody here, then who's not a Christian, who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then this would be the day, Lord, that they would give up all hope of saving themselves and they would trust in Christ and they would realize that the only way into heaven is when you realize you could never go there and you give up all hope of saving yourself and you trust in Christ and His blood and righteousness alone. We just thank you for this wonderful time now and pray that you would be glorified in everything that He said and done in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so we have four things that identify the Christian. Number one, he is identified by what motivates him. He is identified by what motivates him. Because it says in the beginning of verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Motives are everything. Why do you do what you do? Is such an important question. There was a fable about a dog who boasted of his ability as a runner and one day he chased a rabbit and failed to catch it. And the other dogs made fun of him on account of his previous boasting. And his reply was, you must remember that the rabbit was running for his life while I was only running for my lunch. The rabbit clearly had a deeper motivation. But your motive for doing something is important. And in the same way, As Paul was being accused by some in this church, uh, the Corinth that he was writing to, of being selfish and serving God for selfish reasons, in reality his motives were far deeper and that's what he was trying to get at here. And so he says, for the love of Christ Christ controls us and so you could throw out a question what makes this man tick then what, what drives Paul to be dedicated to God and others and the church what motivates him is he driven by selfish desires and ambitions he wasn't being accused in such terms he now talks about his motives he desires to communicate to his readers his sincerity his lack of self interest how a life of self pleasing was impossible to God and he brings up something wonderful. He brings up the exceptional character of Christ's love for him. That is what drove him. This love would have to be Christ's love for us. Because Paul goes on to illustrate the greatness of Christ's love. It's not talking about our love for him. I believe it's talking about Christ's love for Paul. Christ's love for us. Paul's great motivation was that. When I think of my love for Christ... And I I look back at my Christian life, and I think of my love for Christ, and I do love Christ, but is, is, is my love for Christ, is that what would really propel me into serving God? Is that what would really get me going? No, what should really launch me into service, and you could say, catapult me or you into ministry in the church. What really should launch me off like a spiritual rocket from a spiritual Cape Canaveral is the fact that he loves me. That me, a little rebellious grasshopper that left Ireland some years ago with a vile, bad criminal record. I left Ireland with a criminal record. Some of you guys are saying, was he in the IRA? <laughs> Did he plant him out? No. I left Ireland with a bad record and a bad heart. An enemy of God by nature. That's what I'm talking about. I left Ireland as an unsaved little criminal fighting against God. Oh, I was keeping the law on uh, civil law on the outside, but I was an enemy of God. And that such a person as I or all of us who have been who are saved Who are Christians, that such a a person as I would be the object of his blessed, perfect affection, and that he would give me a new heart and new clothes. Could ten thousand trillion dollars, could all the money that Bill Gates have, has, could, could that buy a redirected will? Could that buy a redirected will that's directed in a Godward direction now? Could it buy new desires, new eternal clothes, the righteousness of Christ, making me acceptable forever to God? Could it slash a gigantic debt? Could it open the gates of heaven for us? No, but the love of Christ did all that. So what should launch me, should move me, not my love for Him, but His love for me? as we sang in the song just a few minutes ago, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son and make a wonderful person, a deserving person. No, a wretch. He's treasure though. That's the wonderful thing. And give us a new heart and a new suit of clothes. And so, Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. This is a wonderful word, control. It pictures being held in a grip. It speaks of something that confines, that encloses, that restricts, that holds together, that holds in custody. He says, I'm being held in custody by the love of Christ. It's something that speaks of exerting domination, leaving one with no choice. It speaks of something that shuts a person in or confines them. What Paul is talking about here is that this love, it controls his behavior. And of course, this is not just speaking of controlling, but action, service, and worship that flows from it. See, motivations are everything. And and we should be motivated by the wonderful love of Christ, that Christ has for us and that He poured into us. He didn't just love us from a distance, but as it says in Romans chapter 5, his love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he sees Christ's love for him as something that holds him together in his task and that drives him to serve. No matter what men might think or say, as he was having such a difficult time there in, 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 in Corinth. This is the kind of love that he's never self-seeking. This is, he is compelled... To, uh, to be not self-seeking. It keeps him from living for himself and instead causes him to pour out his life for others. His love controls the direction of his work. This is the kind of love that should control Christians' behavior. This is the kind of love that James has when he preaches his heart out to you on Sunday mornings. It's not James by his human effort doing that, but it's the love of God that's been poured into his heart it's a marvelous, wonderful thing. And it should drive us to want to please Him more than anything else. The realization of this unique love should drive us to say, as Paul said earlier in verse 9, uh, when he says, we have as our ambition, whether at home, in heaven, or absent, to be pleasing to Him. In other words, what he was saying is, listen, while I'm in, even if, whether I'm in heaven, or in, in His glorious presence, are down here on earth. I just want to please Him. And, and so, Paul had mentioned the fear of the Lord in verse 11. And just as the fear of the Lord in verse 11 does not imply cringing terror, but profound, awe-filled respect for the Lord as judge, likewise, the love of Christ is not some sentimental, flippant, casual, kind of a fluffy thing, but it's profound and serious. People have abused the love of Christ. You know, it's abused in the church today. It becomes like a very casual kind of a shallow thing. But it's the profoundest, deepest thing. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about John chapter 16. And he said, For God so loved the world. And, and, And after about 45 minutes on the tape, he got to so loved, you see. Because he spent the first 45 minutes talking about God. And when you get to so loved... Well, you realize it's not a very fluffy, flippant thing at all. And so Paul was governed and restrained by this love. It restrained him from acting for himself. The love of Christ, He says, it coerces me, it impels me. And for us, it should be that governing influence that controls our life. Because we will say that He loved me so much and He poured His love into me. And, 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 and He didn't just take pity on me, but He loved me and He changed me and He gave me a new suit of clothes and that should drive us to say, what can we do, Lord? How can we serve You? A Christian is a person who recognizes that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for Him because He loved Him. And He saw a. Affected by this love for him that he is compelled to do the will of God and to want to do the will of God and to please God more than anything else. He lives, though not perfectly, but he lives that Christ would be shown to be glorious in his life and in this world. And may we live like that. When he says, for the love of Christ controls me, the tense of the verb speaks of a continual habit or a lifestyle. He's, not, he's talking about day after day after day after day. The unique, infinite love of Christ reflected in our devotion to Him. And that's what it means to be controlled by the love of Christ. The, the Christian is... Um, there is no such a thing as a Christian who is not impacted, gripped, profoundly influenced by the realization of the deep love of the, uh, uh, the, the deep holy love that his Lord and Savior has for him. As the song goes, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. A person, even a Christian that's struggling with sin, if you talk to them and you said, do you love Christ? They would say yes. I believe they would say yes. And they would say, is it the deepest desire of your heart to serve Him? And they would say yes even though I'm struggling with this sin and I hate this sin and I want to turn from it. You can be sure there's no such a thing as a Christian who doesn't have a deep desire to serve God, regardless of what things he might be struggling with in his life. The deepest desire of his heart is to serve God because God has given him and he has loved him and given him that desire. No, a Christian doesn't worship other things, but he is wrapped up with Christ, enamored with him. Enamored with the reality that he loved, that Christ loves him. So, you identify a Christian by what motivates him. He's motivated by the fact that God loves him. Number two, how can you identify a Christian? How is he identified? He is identified by what has happened to him. He is identified by what has happened to him. As we jump on to the second part of verse 14, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. We'll be focusing in, tuning into that little statement, all died. Paul starts off here about expressing that he is convinced of the reality of Christ's death. He is convinced of this substitutionary death. On behalf of Him. Because He said, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died in our place to save us from eternal death. That's the wonderful truth about the reality of the the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And when you proclaim the Gospel, you can say with confidence to even the most hardened, rejecting unbeliever, you can say, I'm telling you this. Why? Because it is true. Because it is true. And Paul was convinced, having concluded this, having been, I'm convinced of this, he has said, it is true. So what has happened to the Christian? Well, it says all died. What does it mean? We can be sure that it is connected with no longer living for themselves, that is mentioned in verse 15. The symbolic death that Christians die to self is based on Christ's death to sin when He died for our sins. The all died to living to self as the center of reference because of His death for them. He dies as a substitute for the all. And Paul's living for God and for other believers and not living for himself shows how he was impacted by Christ's death for him. Something happened to him and something happens to every Christian. As it says in Romans 6, 6 and 11, we who are Who died with Christ must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. Romans 6.11 Knowing that the old man was crucified with him so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then it talks about considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And Paul himself says in Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. Isn't that wonderful? We died. It's a wonderful way, the way the Bible puts it. We were dead and we came alive. And we died and we're alive. We're dead to sin and we're alive in Christ. And, 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 uh, and this wonderful, this places, as you could say, in this, we are so obligated to obey Christ. But his death secured this devotion. And he gives us the resources to do it. That's the wonderful thing. So, uh, they all died. We died when we became Christians, when we were saved. As it says in Romans six, six, one 1 and 2, Shall we continue in sin? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? So we would have to say that dying with Christ when we were saved does, involves dying to self and sin. Devotion to God and not to me. Dying to the old life. Dying so that we can live for God and not for me. Death here is clearly more than the the medical definition where the brain stops and the heart, the sparking and the heart stops pushing the blood through our system. It is death to sin, to the flesh, to the old life. Because I remember as as an unbeliever before I died, he was always Tim, 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 Tim. That's all he was. Not Tim, Tim, Tim. That was my attitude to myself. And my attitude to God when his truth was, no, 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 you know. And that's the way it's as simple as that. And 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 yet we were dead in sin, and then we died and we became alive in Christ and we were saved. And you know there's a you know Paul himself mentioned here how how what has happened to us, how we died when we were saved. We died when we became alive. And Paul, there's a wonderful if you talk about anybody's incredible testimony, I mean how Paul died is wonderfully illustrated. In the New Testament, let me just give you a few examples of how death changed Paul. Before he died, this is before he died, Acts 8.3, it says he was ravishing the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. After he died, 2 Thessalonians 2.7-8, he talks about being gentle among the Christians as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And he says, we gave you our very lives because you became very dear to us. What a change. What a miracle. Before he died, Acts 9, 1-2, Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he desired to bring them bound to Jerusalem. After he died, Philippians 1-4, Philippians 1-7, and Philippians 1-8, Always offering prayer for you all. I have you in my heart. God is my witness. How I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ! What a change! What a miracle! Talk about signs and wonders. There's so much time wasted on, on stiff backs, and I don't mean to be unfair here, and leg, and and too funny, and leg lengthening, and emotionalism, and false claims, and a de-emphasizing of the real miracle of new desires new tastes, transformation, a new creation, the miracle of the death of Paul from an abductor and a kidnapper to a nursing mother. From seething anger, rage, desiring to hurt, to praying for the same kind of people and loving them the way Christ loves them. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful miracle. A Christian is not only identified by what motivates him, but he's also identified by what has happened to him. And uh, number three, he's identified by what is missing from his life. What is missing from his life? Beginning verse 15. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves. So we can answer the question, what did dying result in? What is missing from his life? There's a story about a small boy and his sister who were riding on the back of a new wooden horse given to them as a present. Suddenly the boy turned to his sister and said, If one of us would get off, there would be more room for me. See, at first he appears to be impartial. But then he shows his true colors. He's living for himself. And that's what this world is all about. As I said before, that's all I ever did. That was all that was important to me, was living for myself. Even the nice things people do, they're done to make me feel better for myself, to do my good deed for the day, to ease my conscience, to make me look good, to avoid the guilt that comes from maybe doing something wrong just a natural conscience to get rid of the bad feelings to go down in history as a great philanthropist maybe and so on but what about doing it for the glory of God Being, because everybody is born united to Adam we are born as people who live for themselves as David was implying in Psalm 51 where he said in sin my mother conceived me he was in his mother's womb living for himself He's starting off in there, even though he didn't have enough faculties at that time to get it all together. He was, he was showing the potential, you could say, you know. But then a change takes place, a new life, and we die, and there's a life of obedience and unselfish living, and there begins to be an, an increasing lack of self-interest. You know, when I start talking about Tim after a while, it's all right, you know, I can share a few things of interest, but it's not that great. When you start talking about the Lord and His Word, well, that's what makes me excited. That's when I get excited. That's when I get encouraged. It's not wrong to talk about ourselves. We are people. But what really should really get us going is when we talk about the wonderful spiritual things. And so, we, we have a new life. And we're worshipers in spirit and in truth. And, and there's a power in the changed life that is found by being united to Christ. He gave us a new life. He didn't just merely salvage a load of rubbish, which we were, but He transformed us. And He gave us such a a wonderful work on us that we have now a move away from living for ourselves and wanting to live for Him. So Christ does not simply rescue. He changes lives. And Paul's example Paul's life is an example of this incredible change. He lived for himself at one time. He was driven by his lusts, even though it showed itself in his life in religious zeals, But he was just, he might as well, in, in many ways, have just been a, an immoral man instead of a self righteous, fanatical, religious zealot. He was still living for himself. He wasn't living for God because. Because he needed to be changed. And now he was no longer living for his self-interest. And that's what we are as Christians. We should say, God, I know, I'm, you have changed me. I'm no longer living for myself. And just help me, Lord, just to live for you. Because we are, all believers everywhere have died so. And we are no longer slaves to self-love or self-interest. We are slaves to Christ. And so, it means that we can be different in this world. It's not just that we have the truth. Anybody can have the truth, you know. You could teach the truth to a parrot. The parrot has sound theology. Look at that. In a funny voice, he can repeat the deepest theological truth. Sort of, you know. But the truth has us. That's the big difference. The truth has us. We are gripped by the truth, impacted by the truth, and so we no longer live for ourselves. It's laid hold of us. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy some things in this world, but, but, but it's the object of my life is no longer living exclusively for me. Selfishness is ruled out by our desire to live for him. We belong to a new order of life. We can no longer plunge ourselves. Permanently into our old lifestyle. <clears throat> if you try it, you're the most miserable person. I, I really believe you. As a Christian, when you really blow it, I I I have to confess I, I lost my temper this week. I, I I lost my temper on the way here this morning. I couldn't find this the thing. I know I didn't just scream, but I, you know how you, the, the subtle one, you know how your voice goes up, just a tiny octave, you know. But it's enough. To be losing your temper. And, and you do that, but you don't like it. Do you, I don't like it. I hate it. Is that because I'm so great and because I'm so holy? No, because God has given me a new desire. And He, and, and, and I no longer want to live for myself, not because I'm, I'm so great, but because He has changed me. And, and that's the way I think, I think that's really believed. That's what's, that's the reality of a Christian. We have been freed from the bondage of sin, and we're not into living for ourselves. And, and we don't like when we hear in, in this world of self-esteem, self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-obsession, self-worship, and goes on and on. I just ran out of words. There was probably more of them out there. But we are to no longer live for ourselves. We are to stand out as different. That should be clear. We are to live for Christ and give up our rights our personal rights, and not insist in having our own way. No longer allowing our selfish desires to twist the way we regard or treat others. We're talking about the death of our own personal ambitions, longings, securities, purposes. God may have fulfilled some of them, but we have to give them up to God and be willing to let go of them. And if we want to hold on to them, hold on very loosely. And so a true Christian has put his old self to death and he spends his life keeping the old corpse from getting up and spends his life focused on another. Because like, get down, 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 you know. Because the old corpse has a habit, as you know, of wanting to try to get up and, and going and we just have to spend our life. So now the reality is no longer living for myself. And it may be, it's a lifelong battle for the Christian. It's not, we're not talking about perfection, but it is always his direction. There's always a possibility that we as Christians will revert to living for ourselves temporarily But we should hate it, and and our direction should be just to get up, dust yourself off, and get going. And if you fall again, get up, dust yourself off, and get going. And so God can turn us from being like the little boy who said, if one of us gets off here, there would be more room for me to be people who say, I will get off so that you can have more room. That's the difference. So, when we have a nature, like we have a new nature, that's a wonderful... 2 Corinthians 5.17 We may fall into selfishness but it's not to be the pattern of our life. And we should hate it and long not to fall into it. So the Christian is identified by number one by what motivates him. Number two by what has happened to him. And number three he is identified by what is missing in his life. And number four He's identified by what he is preoccupied with. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. The Christian life is not this life where it's all about what I give up. No, it's all about what we gain. It's all about what we are preoccupied. It's not just that selfishness is missing from from our lives and we are like uh, some monks in a far-off place just sitting there in trying to, you know, just sitting there motionless because we have, uh, because our selfishness is missing from our lives. No, that's the ultimate selfishness. We are, we are preoccupied with somebody. We are preoccupied with Christ, because Paul says in verse the end of verse 15, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. He didn't even just say it for Christ, but once again gave the wonderful thing that Christ did, who died and rose again, the reality of his atoning substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf and his glorious resurrection from the dead, which we'll be focusing on in, 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 a, in a few weeks. Paul lives for Christ and not for himself, and he lives for, for those his readers that he was addressing. So, who should we be preoccupied with? Who should get our undivided attention? Who should dominate our lives more than anything else? You know, who who do we live for? The football fan, especially in Europe, he lives for his team. That's fan, fanatic. They have their ashes scattered on their teams. Football grounds, which is easy because it's grass. I hope you Laker fans wouldn't think of doing that. Be hard anyway. But, uh, but, but the people are preoccupied with so much in this world. What, what people spend their time thinking about, planning for, sacrificing for. Preoccupied with so many things. But for us, the, we are to be preoccupied with Christ. Yes, there are other things in our lives. Yes, we have to live. But, but the primary, primarily preoccupied with Jesus Christ. The opposite to living for self is living for the one who willingly died for you. And the wonderful thing is we have all his power at our disposal to do that. So what was Paul preoccupied with? What we have here is a life of obedience to Christ. So gripped by what Christ has done for him. And we should be so gripped by what he has done for us that we want to live for him. An existence that is now centered on Christ and not... On myself. A Christian is not simply someone who is unselfish. A nice person. Somebody who by his own natural reason has talked himself into being nice to others. But a Christian is someone who has been gripped by what Christ has done for him. And he's changed and has died to self. Every believer reacts to Christ in such a way that that we should be compelled to be devoted to him. We should seek to live to serve him. It's the opposite of living for myself. It's really to be preoccupied with Christ is to be a slave to Christ, as Paul talked about in so many of his letters, belonging to someone else instead of myself. The bond servant, the description, the ordinary Greek word for slave that Paul used, described a willing slave who happily and loyally linked him, was linked to his master, a slave who was the possession of his master. He was totally at the disposal of his divine master. Christ owned Paul. May Christ own us completely. He had been bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 He never belonged to anybody else. He desired to live for nobody but Christ. Galatians 2.20 This is the transformation of Paul from the one who fought Christ before the encounter on the road to Damascus to the one who longed to do his will who said as he was lying there on the road blind, blindly following Christ Who are you, Lord? He didn't say, Who are you, fire insurance agent? Or somebody said, Who are you, Lord, Master, Sir? Acts 26.15. And there's some wonderful descriptions of the attitude of a slave of Christ, and so the attitude of one who is preoccupied with Christ. One thing you would say about him is, he considers some things to be more important than his problems. He considers some things to be more important than his problems. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel philippians one twenty one to twenty four he is absolutely sold out to what his master would do to him for me to live is christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor. Having the desire, then he goes on, to be part, depart with Christ, which is far better. He's just sold out to what Christ wants to do to him. The object of his affection is of supreme value. Because he says in Philippians 3, eight, he talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. So you could say, am I preoccupied with Christ? Are you preoccupied with Christ? Is it the deepest desire of your heart To know him, to serve him, and to love him. One of the first books I read was Robinson Crusoe. There's a quotation from that famous book written in the 17th century. He's speaking about the first time he met his friend, Man Friday, because he rescued him on a Friday. He says, I beckoned to to him again to come to me and give him all the signs of encouragement that I could think of. And he came nearer and nearer, kneeling down every ten or twelve steps in token of acknowledgement for saving his life. I smiled at him and looked pleasantly and beckoned to him to come still nearer. At length he came close to me and then he kneeled down again, kissed the ground and laid his head upon the ground and taking me by the foot set my foot upon his head this it seems was a token of swearing to be my slave forever and ever he was extremely grateful if you know the story from escaping ending up on someone's dinner plate but it was far deeper for us as Christians when we want to be Christ's slave forever and ever it's because not only did he save us from hell but he saved us from himself and he saved us. I'm sorry. He saved us from ourself, and he saved us from himself. And he not only did he do that, but he gave us a new heart, a new nature, and he covered us in the righteousness of his son. And so it should be a privilege to be preoccupied with Christ and be a slave of Christ. In, Acts, in closing, in Acts 11.26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. They were called Christ-imitators. And we, may we be Christ-imitators. Im- and may we be identified by what motivates us. That we are the object of the perfect, fathomless affection of Christ. That we may be motivated by what has happened to us. That we have been changed that we may be, that we have died to ourselves. And we, we may be motivated by what is missing from our lives. That we are no longer dominated by self and sin. And that, we may be, and that we may be identified by what we are preoccupied with. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we go to the Lord in prayer now. Almighty God, we do thank you and praise you for this time that we could worship you. And, and Lord, may we... Lord, may we grow in these truths, Lord. That uh, as Christians we are identified by what motivates us, Lord. May we be motivated to a deeper level in the very in, in our lives. For the love of Christ controls us. We are identified by what has happened to us. We have died we have died to self. We are no longer dominated by self. We are alive in Christ. May we be motivated by the great, wonderful miracle that has been performed inside of us by our Lord Jesus Christ. may We, may, we are identified by what is missing from our lives. May we, be, may we live lives, Lord, that are centered on you, Lord. And, and may we just always be ready to, sh- to just be sensitive to reverting back to ourselves. And we are identified by who we are preoccupied with. For that is surely the foundation. May we be preoccupied with you, Lord Jesus, and all that you are. May we feed on your limitless wisdom each day. May we be more than willing to live what you say. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.